You know, one of the, as we go to prayer, just one of the most remarkable things about our faith as followers of Jesus Christ is the fact that this almighty God we've just sung about is the God, as Thad's reminded us so wonderfully in communion, that we can address as Father. In fact, that's probably when most of us pray, that's the that's the designation, that's the ascription we use most frequently, most familiar to us is our Father, our Heavenly Father. We do it because Jesus taught us to pray that way, but we should never forget again, and we have been reminded this morning of what an incredible, incredible price and cost and act of love it was on God's behalf to crush His Son, to put Him to death, simply so that, uh, among many other things, we could address the Almighty God as our Heavenly Father. Father. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Lord says itself, it says, thus says the Lord Almighty, come out from their midst and be separate. Don't touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. And Lord, on this day that, that our culture calls Father's Day, and it's a good day, Lord, we need a day like this when when men who are and have are in the process even still of raising families, maybe even anticipating being a father for the first time or all over again. Father, we need encouragement. We, we, we cherish that, Lord. We know how encouraging it is when one of our children tells us that they're thankful for us or that they love us. And Father, we, we cherish that relationship. How much more must you be pleased to hear your children, even us here this morning, come to you and say, Father... Lord, we thank you that we can do that today, that we can approach the Holy One who's high and exalted, the one whom, on one hand, we must hide our eyes and tremble before him because he's a consuming fire, and yet he says, come to me, you say, come to me, I am your heavenly Father, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. God, you are so good to us, and we are so blessed and so thankful. So Father, we pray that as we have sung your praises this morning, you have been pleased and blessed by what you've heard Father, I pray that as we have come to the cross in communion, that we've been reminded of just what Christ did out of love for us, Lord, that though our sin nailed him to the cross, your, your love did as well. And Father, now we come to your word, and I pray, Lord, this morning that whatever kind of week we've had, whatever kind of morning it's already been, however awake or asleep or open or, or hardened our hearts may be, Father, that in this moment you would stir in us, Lord, only your Holy Spirit can do it, a sense of expectation, not of what the preacher has to say, but what the Spirit is saying to the churches, what the Spirit of God has to say to his people, what our Heavenly Father wants to say to his sons and daughters brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, may our hearts be open and ready to receive, to hear your voice speaking to us. Lord, there's only one way that can happen. It's the same thing, and it's why we pray it every Sunday, that, that you, by your Holy Spirit, who lives within us and meets with us when we come together in the name of Christ, that he would be our teacher, that he would guide us in truth, that he would guard us from error, that he would deliver us from apathet apathetic hearts and lazy hearts and proud hearts and stubborn hearts and broken hearts and all the rest so that we might see Jesus. Lord, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And Lord, we want to leave rejoicing in a little while. Yes, because it's a beautiful sunny summer day, but much more because we sat at the feet of the one who loved us enough to lay his life down and who was strong enough to take it up again. And so we pray asking all these things in his powerful, wonderful, glorious, majestic name, the name of Jesus. God's people then said, amen and amen. You may be seated. And while you're taking your seats, let's allow the boys and girls to, uh, to leave for Children's Church. Uh, boys and girls, you're free to go. You have five-year-olds up through second graders. And I want to invite everybody else 
As the kids head out, as always, to grab your Bible and turn in it with me to 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, where this morning we, um, this is not necessarily a Father's Day type message. If you want to find some connection, that's fine. We're just pressing on in our study of God's servant, the prophet Elijah. So I want you to go to 1 Kings chapter 18. We left off at the end of chapter 17 last Sunday. We are continuing to look. We're spending these summer months, and if you've not been here the past couple of weeks, uh, just by way of where we've been so you know where we're going, we are looking at, at the story of, of, of one of God's really unique and, and amazing servants in the Bible, the prophet Elijah. You've probably heard his name. You've probably uh, know some details of his story, uh, but I'm not sure he's always gotten the attention he deserves. So the Lord has led us to give him our undivided in these summer months together. And we're going to read the story. We're going to continue the story that is here in just a moment as you continue to make your way to 1 Kings chapter 18. And as you're getting there and sort of settling in, let me begin by sharing with you the fact, and, 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 and if you're a student of history, maybe you're somewhat familiar with this. If not, uh, you may be interested to know that back in the year 1880, a uh, long time ago, uh, going into the 1880 Republican National Convention, it was an election year, Everybody who was attending that uh, convention, uh, people around the country as they were paying attention to it, as the delegates gathered uh, to nominate a candidate for president in Chicago, everybody thought one of three men was sure to secure the Republican nomination. The first choice of many people was former President Ulysses S. Grant. He had served a couple of terms, he'd been out for a couple of terms, he wanted back in on the action, so he threw his hat back into the ring. Second candidate, many people thought, uh, might be the nominee for the Republicans that year in the election uh, was Maine's powerful Senator James G. Blaine. A lot of people thought he was the guy to ascend to the highest office in the land. And then there was a segment, a significant group that, that thought their man might get in, the Treasury Secretary John Sherman. Again, going into the convention, everybody thought it's going to go to one of these three guys. But as the convention began and the delegates voted. After their first round of voting, none of those three men, though they all uh, garnered a significant number of votes, none of them got the 379 votes needed to secure the nomination and to go on to run for president. So they voted again. <laughs> and again. They don't do it this way anymore, but this is how they did it back then. And again. And again, 33 times in all, without any one of those three men securing enough votes to win the nomination. It took days. If you want to read interesting history, go to Wikipedia and look up the 1880 convention. It was a madhouse. It was nuts. But after 33 rounds, no candidate for president, no party nominee. And, and as uh, you might expect, as that was all unfolding, people began to throw out ideas. And one of the things, thoughts, ideas that began circulating on the convention floor was maybe we need another guy. Maybe there's a dark horse candidate who can unite the party, who we can all gather around. And the name mentioned most frequently through those 33 rounds of balloting was Ohio Senator James A. Garfield. People mentioned his name. People thought maybe this is the guy. And then it happened. After garnering Garfield no more than two votes, in each of the first 33 rounds of balloting, in round 34, he got 17. In round 35, he got 50. And in ballot round number 36, the final and decisive round, everything gave way. All the votes went his direction. He received 399 votes to secure the nomination as a Republican candidate 
for president. The problem is he didn't want it. <laughs> he had said all along throughout the balloting, even going to the convention, I don't want to be president. I don't desire to be president. Got enough on my plate. I don't want the job. And so when the final, literally, reports, multiple reports, reports say that when the final tally was announced, he was seated at the end of the platform with his head in his hands, just shaking it back and forth. One newspaper reporter said he was pale as death. He didn't want the job, but it was his, and he took it, and, and while he did, if you know your history, then go on to win the general election, the reason I tell you this story is that he did so essentially as a man in the middle. In the middle of circumstances beyond his control, something happened to him that he didn't want, seek, or ask for, and yet it was his. And as a result, because those circumstances were thrust upon him, he was put in that position. Going forward, whether he liked it or not, he was responsible to make decisions that affected the lives of millions of people. And the reason I tell you that story is because this morning in this story, 1 Kings 18, verses 1 through 19, a very similar story is told. Because in these verses, in this section, which in one sense is merely prelude uh, to the rest of the chapter, which is like the pinnacle story in the entire uh, account of Elijah's life, so come back next week, you're really going to want to hear it, it's a good one. Uh, in one sense, what we're looking at is prelude to that. What you need to know about the verses this morning is that our two main characters so far, Elijah the prophet and wicked King Ahab, while they are present in the story, they are not prominent. And the reason they are not, the reason both of them are present but fade into the background is because there's another man whose story is about to be told. A character we've not seen before, and after this chapter, we never see again. And what we're going to see as we read his story is that he, like President James A. Garfield, was a man in the middle of something bigger beyond his control. So grab your Bible and follow along as I read 1 Kings 18, verses 1 through 19, where this is what the Word of God says. Now it happened, after many days, that the Word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. This would be the third year of the drought and the famine that he prophesied, saying, Here's what God said to him, go, show yourself to King Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, that's the capital city. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for when Jezebel, the queen, destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets of the Lord and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, go. Through the land, to all the springs of water, and to all the valleys, for perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And he, Obadiah, recognized him, Elijah, and fell on his face and said, Is this you, Elijah, my master? And he said to him, It is I. Go, say to your master, King Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. He, Obadiah, said, what sin have I committed that you're giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? For as the Lord your God lives, there's no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent to search for you. And when they said he is not here, he made those kingdoms or nations swear that they couldn't find you. And now you're saying, go, say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. I know what's going to happen. It'll come about that when I leave you, 
The Spirit of the Lord will carry you to where I do not know. And when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he'll kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told to my master what, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? That I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave, providing them with bread and water? And now you're saying, go, say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. He will then kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now then, Send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table now. Before we dig into the passage and, and figure out what's going on and why it matters and how it's relevant, remember what we have seen the past two weeks, the first two weeks in our study of Elijah so far. This is review if you've been here. This is introduction if you have not. Because what we have seen so far is that God called this man Elijah without any sort of warning suddenly onto the scene in the nation of Israel. At what was, to that point in time, the most spiritually desolate era in in all of Israel's history so far. Idolatry ruled the land. They were desolate times. And he specifically, in those desolate times, called the prophet Elijah to confront some pretty fearsome enemies, wicked King Ahab, wicked-er Queen Jezebel, to call them to account and, and, and to resolve uh, before them the question of whose God is the true God, who should be worshipped in the land of Israel. And because what we have said so far is because Elijah was willing to be used in that way, he was willing to go where God sent and do what God told and, and say what God gave him to say to the king, we were, at least I have, maybe you've begun to as well, refer to him as a zealot, a man singularly and passionately devoted to serving God, whatever the cost, so that God's glory could shine in his story. And now this morning, between where we left off last week at the end of chapter 17 and where we began reading this morning at the beginning of chapter 18, what you need to know is three full years of time have passed. Three full years of devastating drought, as Elijah promised. Three full years of of exile for Elijah, where God was preparing and equipping him for what he was to do next. And so now, just as clearly as at the beginning of chapter 17, verse 3, God said, go away from here and hide yourself away from Ahab. Here this morning at the beginning of chapter 18, God just as clearly said, now go show yourself to Ahab, for I'm going to send rain upon the earth. That's the setup. But here's the thing. I've already suggested to you, and we're going to see in the remainder of our time together, today's episode in the life and times of Elijah isn't really about Elijah at all. He's there, he's present, but he's not the main character. He's not who the story is all about. Instead, this morning's story is about a man in the middle, A man in the middle by the name of Obadiah. And to understand why he's here, why his story is told, and what difference in the world it makes to you and me. There are three things in this story I want to show you before we're done. The first two we'll look at quickly. The third is really where we're headed. And they revolve around the three characters who've just been named. Ahab, Elijah, and Obadiah. Here's the first thing I want you to see. And here's why I call Obadiah the man in the middle. Because at one end of the spectrum, the first thing I want you to see in the story this morning is that we do still have present King Ahab. And here's what you need to know about King Ahab. He was a man who had everything but God. 
Ahab was a man with everything you could ever want in life but God. Because as we already know, he was Israel's king. And what we also have learned along the way is that along with his wife Jezebel, he ruled with an iron and often bloody fist. He's a tough guy, a bad dude. And, and furthermore, what we also know about King Ahab is his power his, was, was absolute not only in the political realm, but also in the spiritual realm as well. He held sway in everyone's life in both of those respects because we saw he built a temple to Baal, massive temple to Baal, another massive temple alongside it to, to Baal's female counterpart Asherah. And along with Queen Jezebel, they said, this is who we worship in Israel from now on. You worship Baal or you die, that's the way it goes. That's what he had done. He had absolute political and spiritual power. And as such, because he was the king and had all that authority, he enjoyed all the trappings that that royalty is accustomed uh, to having. He had power. He had money. He had a palace. He had an army. He had land. He had livestock. He had horses. He had chariots. And verse verse 5 shows us in no uncertain terms that's where his true treasure was found. Look at verse 5. Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys, for perhaps we'll find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. Remember, it's a famine. Three years of famine. Neither rain nor dew have fallen from the sky even once. And so Ahab says this to his servant Obadiah at a a time of great extremity in Israel. There is drought, there's famine, there's all the ugliness and death and disease that comes with it. And what verse 2 adds is it it was especially bad, it was harshest and most difficult in Ahab's own hometown of Samaria. It says it in verse 2, it was extremely difficult and ugly there. Yet what do we just see in verse 5? While his people are literally starving in the street by thousands. People certainly at this point after three years dying every day, what's he concerned with? Keeping the livestock fed. Let's not worry about the people. i got to hold on to power. At all costs, keep the economy humming, right? Not much has changed. It's not about the people. It's about his power. And in verses 17 and 18, Elijah exposed in no uncertain terms why Ahab's heart was bent in that direction. Look at 17 and 18, or verse 18. Elijah says to him, I have not troubled Israel. You and your father's house are the real troublers of Israel because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. You don't follow God anymore, and we're all paying the price. Simply put, at one end of the spectrum, Ahab was a man with everything, everything but God. Well, at the other end of the spectrum, the second thing we should see, the second formerly major character, this morning a minor character, is Elijah. And by absolute contrast to Ahab, who was a man with everything but God, Elijah, secondly, was a man with nothing but God. Elijah in this story is shown to us clearly as a man who had nothing in his life at this point except for God. Because remember what's happened to him. After appearing on the scene for a moment, delivering a one-sentence sermon, right? Don't get any ideas. One-sentence sermon. (laughs) God sent him into exile for three years. Three years as the, the, the drought is taking place, and for three years, God had been providing for him. First of all, we saw last Sunday that as, as absurd as it sounds, that, that the way God sustained him at first was with twice daily raven delivery service. The ravens brought bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and, and, and when that cycle was completed, God sent him into the heart of Baal country uh, to where uh, Baal worship was, was most prominent, where it had really had its sort of uh, center 
to be fed by an impoverished widow who had almost nothing for herself, but she sustained him for the remainder of that exile. And oh, by the way, while he was there, you might remember, he raised that widow's son from the dead. And through all of that exile, basically there's one lesson God was seeking to impress as deeply as possible on Elijah's heart. One question, do you trust me? Do you trust me, Elijah? I've called you to be my prophet. You've done something great, but do you trust me? Will you depend on me alone? That was the point of the exile. It's what we talked about last Sunday, and I'm here to suggest to you that it must have worked. Because what the first two verses of this chapter again say that that it happened. Verse 1, look at your Bible after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I'll send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went. She did it. Did what God said. No hesitation, apparently, or fear. But even so, don't miss the fact that though he was obedient, his obedience was strictly and solely in total dependence on the Lord. He didn't have anything. He'd been provided for by others, birds and widows for three years. He had no possessions. He had nothing but, we would assume, uh, the clothes on his back, a staff to walk with, nothing. And God says, go back to the king, in dependence on me. And and I have to think that along the way, as as great a man of faith as he was, and all that God had uh, impressed upon him in those three years, I'm guessing that along the way there were still temptations to turn back, because what did we learn? What have we talked about the last two weeks from James 5.17? That Elijah was a man just like who? Us. Just like us. And I imagine that as he walked on foot 120 miles from Zarephath in the north to Ahab's throne room in the south, and every village he went through, there were starving, dying people in the streets, disease and, and all the ugliness that comes when people can't get enough to eat. And between those villages, there's nothing but desolate wasteland and dry creek beds. And the fact that even when he was going to the king and would stand before the king, though the promise that rain had been given, he didn't know when it was coming. And and so he's going to say this, and the potential, I don't know what Ahab's going to think if I say it's going to rain and it doesn't. Maybe the king's going to kill me. And, And then the reality all along the way that Throughout this entire northern kingdom through which he was traveling, he had been for three years public enemy number one. Can you imagine how many people would have been tempted if they saw Elijah had come to town in order to curry favor with the king to save their own lives in famine? They might go, hey, Ahab, he's here. He's a great man of faith, but had all kinds of reasons to be tempted to turn back. What I'm saying to you is by faith, having literally nothing but God on his side, Elijah pressed on. In contrast to Ahab, a man with everything but God, Elijah pressed on as a man with nothing but God. And we can be glad he did, right? And specifically this morning, the reason we can be glad he did is because on the way, he was, and as a result, we are as well introduced to the real main character of this story, the man in the middle. We've got Ahab on one side, everything but God. Elijah on the other side, nothing but God. In the middle, there is this man named Obadiah, and here's what I want you to know about him this morning. Here's where all of this is going. He was a man, thirdly, with a decision to make. He was a man with a decision to make. Because a showdown was just around the corner. It's next week, and I'm telling you again a second time, it's really a great story. A showdown between Ahab and Elijah is just around the corner, and he is the man in the middle of it, this showdown that is on the way. 
And, and what you need to know about him, what the text tells us about him, about this man, Obadiah, is this. Let me quickly tell you four things about Obadiah because they're important. Number one, the first thing to know about this man in the middle of Ahab and Elijah and the impending showdown is this. Obadiah was an ordinary man. He really, truly was an ordinary man because he was not, as I originally thought before I dug into the passage, the same Obadiah who wrote the book that bears his name. You know there's a book in the Bible, the book of Obadiah. It's not the same guy. In fact, what I learned this week that I'd never known before is that in the Old Testament, there's actually 13 Obadiahs. Did you know that? Trivia, you write that down, take it home, impress your friends. 13 Obadiahs in the Bible. What does that mean? Ordinary guy. That in the land of Israel, during Elijah's lifetime, there was an Obadiah on every corner. There was an Obadiah in every family. He is, his name doesn't mean, but it could very easily mean every man. Ordinary guy. And yet the second thing this passage tells us about him is that this ordinary man had an influential position. That he was an ordinary man, but in a very influential position. Look at verse 3. It says in verse 3, look again at your Bible, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, when I read that the first time, you didn't pay attention to it. Neither did I. Because it's bland. It's ordinary. He's over the household. So what? There's got to be something more interesting than that. Actually, there's not. Because what that literally means is that that this ordinary guy, Obadiah, was wicked King Ahab's right-hand man. The old-timey term for it is he would have been called in a certain day the king's chamberlain. That doesn't mean much to us. In our culture, in our context, it means he's the secretary of state. The secretary of state has one primary assignment. Find out what the boss wants done and get it done. Whatever the big man wants, whatever the man in charge desires, the secretary of state is the guy who is in charge of carrying it out. That's Obadiah. He was over the household of Ahab. Now, it is unclear how I looked. I have no idea how, as a believer, he snagged that role, (laughs) how he got in that position. And in that role, as a faithful believer, managed to stay out of Jezebel's crosshairs, Because she's going around, it says you're killing prophets and believers on every side. And there he is, right in the king's throne room, as a man of God. And he's safe. That's what it says. And you know, I thought about that. I thought, you know, and and if you know your Bible, and if you don't know your Bible, you need to know this. God has a, a knack for doing this kind of thing in the scriptures. It's like, he, it's like he does it just because he can. Because when you go through the Bible, you find God doing this all the time. Remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? Joseph is a godly man of integrity. Who's he work for? Pharaoh, right-hand man. He runs the show. You move on to the book of Nehemiah. We may not know as much about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the right-hand man of King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was not a godly man. Nehemiah was. And he had the king's confidence. Daniel, you're familiar with Daniel, right? Daniel worked for all kinds of wicked guys, most notably Nebuchadnezzar. God just put him in that position, let him run the show. Even Queen Esther, right? She was used mightily by God, married to a pagan king. God used her in that position to save his people. Again, you know what? I think God just does it because he can. He's like, watch what I'm going to (laughs) do. Everybody's out there killing prophets. I'm going to put the chief one right there at the hand of the king, and there isn't anything anybody can do about it. And I'm going to put him there for my purposes. I'm going to put him there specifically so that my glory, God would say, shines in this story. And guess what? In Obadiah's story, it already had. Because there's a third thing you need to know about Obadiah. He was an ordinary man in an influential position who had 
this story tells us, shown incredibly courageous faith. He was a man of courageous faith. Because while a lot of people go around saying they fear God, I'm a God-fearing man, she's a God-fearing woman, people throw that term around with some level of comfort and familiarity. Obadiah claimed it as well, verse 12. When he meets Elijah, he says this, I have feared the Lord. I have been a God-fearing man since I was a kid. All my life, I have followed him. You know, anybody can say that. I love the Lord. I obey the Lord. My life's all about following Jesus. Where's the proof? It's in what you do. I can claim it, but what does James tell us over in the book of James in the New Testament? It's one thing to be a hearer of the word. It's another to be a doer, and the doer shows what you heard and what you believe. Anybody can claim to be a God-fearing man. Obadiah was. Why? Verse 3 and 4. Because when Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, was destroying the prophets of the Lord, what did Obadiah do? He took a hundred prophets, and he hid them in two groups of fifties in a cave, and he, apparently alone, provided them with bread and water. Think about that. Remember, it's famine. One man feeds a hundred cave dwellers daily in a famine. Why? Because he believed and trusted the Lord. Because it's what God called him to do. And think of the extreme personal risk. Again, in Ahab's court, every single day, he's there. And yet at the same time, he's being used by God. And there's anything Ahab and Jezebel can do. Because they don't know. That's how our God works. And it was a risk. But as Ralph Davis writes about this passage, about this portion of the story, the point is simply this. His activity was the fruit of his fear. He feared the Lord, and so he acted accordingly. Amal, Ahab, wicked King Ahab, his boss, his passion, his obsession was saving mules for his own glory. Obadiah's passion was saving prophets for God's glory, that there might be a remnant in the land of Israel, that people might still be able to know and worship God. However, everybody say however. <laughs> There's always a however, right? There's a turning point. The whole point of Obadiah's inclusion in this story, in the Elijah narrative, is to show us something you've heard many times before in a different context. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. It's no guarantee. Because the whole point, the whole tipping point of this entire story comes down to this fact. This ordinary man in the middle, in an influential position, who's shown courageous faith in the past. Here's the fourth thing you need to know about him. He was in the moment facing a truly distressing dilemma. He was a man confronted with a distressing, a deeply, truly, costly, distressing dilemma. Because was, here's what the story says, at least here's how I understand what I understand it to be saying, that in verse 7, I, I have to think that when Obadiah was out looking for grass and water for the king and he saw Elijah come over the hill, he's thinking to his great relief, right on, the man has come to take over, Right? I can put Elijah up in that spot and I can step into the background. And Elijah had come to take over, but not yet. He had come to take charge. He'd come to lead the confrontation. But he needed Obadiah to do something first. And whether, we, whether he knew, he must probably have known that Obadiah was Ahab's right-hand man. But whether he did or not, he addressed him in such a way. He said to him, it is I, look at verse 8, it is I, Elijah, you are correct. Now here's what I want you to do. Go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. 
And you know what that prompted? <laughs> In Obadiah's heart, an, an emotional response, a fearful response. In fact, he has a little bit of a tantrum right, right there in front of Elijah because what he says, and I'm paraphrasing as you'll see, but in the verses that follow when he says, go tell Ahab, Elijah is here. Obadiah's response is, Elijah, are you kidding me? You do realize he's been trying to find you for three years. He's wanted your head on a platter more than he wants anything else in this entire kingdom. And he has searched far and wide. He's gone beyond the land of Israel looking for you. And when he can't find you, he makes the people swear there that, that they better be telling the truth because if not, he's coming back for them. And now you want me to go say, here he is. Because here's, and, and then he begins to presume. Here's what Obadiah does. He begins to presume the outcome. He says, because I know what's going to happen because I know how God works. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go tell Ahab, you're here. We're going to come back, and then the Holy Spirit's going to do that thing he does so often. He's going to take you somewhere else, and, we're gonna, and you're not going to be there. And Ahab's not going to be happy. And he's going to want to kill somebody, and I'm going to be standing there, so he'll kill me. What in the world are you asking me to do? Do you realize who you're talking about? Do you realize what you're asking me to do? <laughs> thanks, but no thanks, Elijah. Go see the king yourself. That's what he says. That's what he means. Showing us this. That Obadiah may have been, and he truly was, he had been, and he was in his life a God-fearing man. But in the moment, everybody say, in the moment, he feared the king more in the moment. And you know what? That makes him just like me. Makes him just like you. In fact, if you have struggled with this notion I've given you the last couple of weeks where James 5.17 says Elijah was a man just like us. You're like, yeah, maybe, but maybe not. Bet you don't have that dispute with Obadiah. Yeah, I love the Lord, want to follow the Lord, want to serve the Lord, but I get scared when God asks me to do hard things. Who's in that party? Who's, who's there with me? Yeah, God asks us to do hard stuff and we get scared and we quibble and we argue and we say, no, find somebody else. I'm just saying that this ordinary man in an influential position who'd shown courageous faith faced a distressing dilemma and he shrank back for a moment. Because then look at verse 16. It says that when it was all said and done, in the moment he went. Elijah assured him, listen, I'm not going anywhere. God's arranged this appointment. I will show myself to him today. So verse 16, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah and here's why I've taken the time to tell you this story in great detail, because in our final few minutes together, I want to suggest to you why he did. Why, despite his fear, Obadiah went anyway. As the man in the middle, at great personal risk and cost, did what he was being asked to do. Thought about it, prayed about it, studied it, and I think I know why. And the reason I want to take the time to spell it out is because, as I suggested a moment ago, as believers, we find ourselves there all the time. You're the man in the middle, the woman in the middle, the teenager in the middle, the kid in the middle. Between what? Devotion and obedience, joyful obedience to God and distressing dilemmas, big questions, great needs, opposition, challenge, all, whatever. Just put it all in the box right over here, okay? You find yourself in distressing dilemmas where the fundamental question, if you're a believer in the Lord, a follower of Jesus Christ, is the question, what does God want me to do? And can I trust him? Obadiah went. And I think the reason that he did, as the man in the middle, it requires some reading between the lines, but I think I'm on safe biblical ground when I do it, is I think he resolved several questions. 
And I want, I'm just going to give them to you quickly, and I'll give you the big idea, and we're done. Because what I'm about to give you or share with you from God's word is not a formula. Everybody say, it's not a formula. Okay, it's not a formula. I'm, I'm going to give you five questions. They are not the five questions that you can use to determine God's will for your life in every situation. They're not a formula. God doesn't work in formulas. They're a filter. Say they're a filter. They're a filter you can run your distressing dilemmas through. Your choices, your decisions, big ones, small ones. When the question of your heart is, I feel pulled in two directions, what does God want me to do? Five questions that I believe very quickly Obadiah had to resolve. They are as follows. Number one, did the Lord give me this assignment? First question you got to ask yourself when you're in a distressing situation as a follower of Christ. Did God give me this assignment or did I make this mess myself? Yes, he's in charge of it. Did I put myself here? What do I mean? I mean that in accordance with the scripture, can I look, can I trace through the, 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 the situations, the circumstances that have brought me to this point, can I say that I have done my best through the process to trust in the Lord with all my heart, not leaning on my own understanding? And in all my ways, I've sought to acknowledge him, and I haven't done it perfectly, but I've tried to let him direct my path. Did God give me this assignment? If so, question two, do I believe, listen, God's bigger than the risks? Do I believe, can I trust God's bigger than the risks? That I see this assignment, this challenge, this, this question entails that is to say, do I really believe the Apostle Paul meant it when he said in Romans 8 that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Not things I can see or can't see, things on heaven or in heaven or on earth. Do I believe God's bigger than the risks? Third, am I willing to trust God with the outcome rather than presuming I know how it's going to go down? Am I willing to say what Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done? Because here's what Obadiah was doing in the story. It's the same thing I do all the time. So do you. Well, God, if, if, if this is what you're asking me to do, here's the three ways it can go. Because there's only three, right, God? Only three ways it's going to go this way, that way, or that way. And I don't like any of them. <laughs> we know you created the whole universe, but you only came up with three options for me, right? Wrong. But we do that. If I do it, this is what's going to happen. If I say it, this is how they're going to respond. If I act on it, here's what's going to happen to me. We, we try to determine the will of God for him. And that's what Obadiah is doing. If, if, if I go tell him, he's going to kill me. That's what's going to happen. I'm going to die. Tantrum, right? Panic. But we shouldn't presume anything. Because James 4 says, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. So don't say we're going to go here and there, make a profit, live a year, do this, that, the other thing. That's what it says in James 4. It says instead, we should say, if the Lord wills, everybody say that, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that or whatever he wants us to do. If the Lord wills, he's in charge. Fourth, you know this one's coming. Have I prayed? Attentively, there's the key word, attentively. As I find myself, the man, the woman in the middle, have I prayed attentively? And by attentively, I mean this. Have I done all the talking or have I listened <laughs> as well? Because sometimes we do that. I do it all the time. Perhaps you do too. We have a distressing dilemma. We have a problem. We have a question. And we go to God in prayer and we talk and we talk and we talk and we talk. And he already knows. Amen? He already knows, right? You don't need to tell him all the details. He knows them better than you do. You can. That's fine if it's unburdening your heart. That's okay. But the scripture shows us that part of prayer is not just talking but listening for the voice of the Lord. And I'm here to tell you he speaks. 
I've never heard an audible voice, but I've had God speak to my heart when I've listened. And can you say, particularly in a distressing dilemma, that I've devoted as much time to listening with an open Bible for the voice of the Lord as I have telling him what's going on? Even Samuel, remember Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3, when he's a little boy, he was smart enough to say, in an unusual situation, not, listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Have I listened to God? Fifth and finally, am I ready to yield to God's plan? We've seen that word, yield, again and again in Elijah's story already. Am I ready to yield to God's plan? Why? Because without faith, it's impossible. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to serve him without faith. If you can do it yourself, you don't need him. It's not faith. But if he does it through you, extraordinary things are possible. Listen, I'm not saying that's how it unfolded there in the moment in Elijah's mind. I'm not saying he had these five questions in his pocket, pulled them out, checked them off the list, and then he was good. I'm just saying that as a man who truly feared the Lord, he must have settled those issues at some point, either in the moment with Elijah or on his way to the king. Do I believe God's given me this assignment? Do I trust he's bigger than the risks? Can I trust him with the outcome? Am I listening for his voice? And am I ready to yield? And since he was, since he answered all five of those matters in the affirmative, the passage ends with some good news, verse 19, that God used him. God used him to set up the pivotal showdown in the land of Israel to determine whose God is the true God. He was the man in the middle. And what's interesting is after that verse, verse 16, Obadiah appears, disappears from the Bible forever. We never see this. I told you those other Obadiahs, we never see this one again. And you know, in retrospect, as I thought about that, I thought, well, that's interesting. Why is this story even there at all? I mean, the, the important thing was for Elijah and Ahab to get together and have their showdown, right? I mean, there's a sense in which you go, well, who cares how they met? I mean, if, if this story hadn't been there, we go, well, somehow, we wouldn't even stop to ask the question. Somehow Elijah got into Ahab's court. They went forward with the showdown, everything we're going to see next week. Why is this story here? Who really needs to know about an ordinary guy named Obadiah? I do. You do. As the people of God, we do. Because what his presence here in the story shows us, just like the widow we saw last week, it's just another brilliant reminder, listen, that God loves and God uses all kinds of people in all sorts of ways to let his glory shine in their story. In other words, there's more than one way to be a zealot. You don't have to be an Elijah, you can be an Obadiah, and you probably are. And that's why the big idea of the message this morning, listen to me and be encouraged Every believer, every believer is an invaluable instrument in God's hands. Every believer. A priceless treasure in God's hands to let his glory shine in our world through us. Father, would you convince our doubting hearts that that's true? The thing in us that rises up and says, but I'm not, and you say, yes, you are. It says, I can't, and you say, I know, but by my grace, you can. That we say, I won't, and Lord, you come along and say, yeah, you should, and you can, and with my help, you will. Father, I don't know what the distressing dilemmas or just the ordinary questions of life any one of us is facing here today, but I know there are some. 
Father, I pray that this morning, to whatever extent we find ourselves as the man or the woman or the kid in the middle of devotion to you and distressing situations, big questions, perplexing stuff, we would be willing to say, the Lord can handle it all, and I will go. Father, take the things of truth spoken this morning, seal them to our hearts, and let all the rest be forgotten so that we leave seeking, seeing, trusting Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen.